Okay, let's try this again. First Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 12, we'll be looking, uh, excuse me, First Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 12, we'll look at verses 12 and 13 this evening. Title of the message, Love on Purpose with Purpose. Love on Purpose with Purpose. Tonight we're going to consider what we might call one of the cornerstones of all that we are as believers. We're here because we have responded to the love of God that was poured out on mankind in the form of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. This is what we might call super abundant love. In fact, it is the greatest of love according to Jesus Christ Himself who said in John fifteen thirteen, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. The laying down of one's life for the sake of another, the very greatest expression of love that one can make. We spoke of the Gospel this morning. We speak of the Gospel regularly at Legacy Baptist Church. Jesus Christ laid down His life. And He did so not just for one man, but for all men, so that God, through Christ, has poured out upon the entire world the very greatest expression of love possible. We become believers when we, having recognized that expression of love, respond to that love by doing what Jesus asked us to do, which is to believe on His name to be saved. And when we believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Scriptures tell us He will save us from our sins. Once we have accepted the love of Christ, we have accepted that love for ourselves by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then we begin what we might call a journey of emulation. Our Christian life begins. Salvation is not the end goal. It's the beginning. It's a new birth. It's a new life in Christ. It's the beginning of something far more. We should never think that, that we've reached the goal when we see someone saved. That we've hit that, that end point because that is just the beginning of a new life in Christ. Now there needs to be growth. Now there needs to be sanctification. Now there needs to be um, a reprodu- reproduction so that, so that you take that person who has been saved and, and you work with them until you see them go out and start reaching others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul taught us in Romans 8.29 this, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. As believers in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we have been predestinated, ordained by God to be conformed to the image of of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which means that if you are a believer in this room today, God's end goal for you is Christ-likeness. Jesus Christ Himself exhorted His disciples unto emulation. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, He said, Be ye therefore perfect, complete. That's what that word means. Finished or complete, having all that is necessary to its nature and kind. It doesn't mean sinless. It means complete. Be ye perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. If such is the character of the God we serve, who made us a new creation by placing within us His Holy Spirit, 
so that we can accurately say that we have God indwelling us, then it follows without any controversy that the love of God must be foundational to a believer's character and actions if he's going to walk in fellowship with his Savior. May I say that again? If such is the character of the God that we serve, who has made us a new creation by placing within us His Holy Spirit so that we can uh, accurately say that we have God indwelling us, then it follows without any controversy that God-like love or God's love must be foundational to a believer's character and actions if he intends to walk in fellowship with his Savior. And we're going to consider that this evening in just these two verses here at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we're going to rest on this topic that is of utmost importance to a Christian's life. That is the topic of love. Take a look with me if you would. Beginning, if you will, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8 for context. For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God Himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men even as we do toward you, to the end that uh, to the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. As Paul transitions this epistle, the epistle of uh, Paul to the Thessalonians, away from his review of the past. Remember, he's been talking about the past, the past ministry and testimony and efforts and toward his teaching concerning the present, he does so with what we would typically call a benediction or a blessing. That the Lord make you to increase and abound in love. Throughout the past three chapters, Paul has mentioned specifically that his philosophy of ministry is pointed toward the idea of emulation. That he would live in a manner that would teach the churches with whom he would interact how they ought to live as well. Literally, that he would be a living example of what they ought to be. This concept is extended in Paul's blessing to them, that they would exhibit a love for one another and a love for all men, he says, that is reflective of the love that Paul and his companions showed toward them. Paul's philosophy of ministry is described well in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, where he says, follow me as I follow Christ. That is indeed the essence of ministry, that we would follow those who follow Christ, that we would be following Christ so that others could follow us into righteousness. Not that they are following us as an idol or that they are following us in in an inappropriate way, but that they are seeing in you a proper example of what it means to be a biblical Christian so that when they say, what should I be doing? You can say, well, you just do what I'm doing and I can 
tell you that what I'm doing is right. I'm being a good example. So if you follow my example, you'll know what to do. That's not proud. That's being a good example. That's right. So that was Paul's desire for the church. That they would love and express their love in the same manner that they saw Paul and his companions express love toward them. You know, love is one of the most fundamentally misunderstood concepts in all of the Bible. And the reason why this is the case is because, as with many things in the modern church, Christians are superimposing the culture's definition of love upon the Bible. So when they hear that word in the Bible, love, love your neighbor as yourself, love God, love one another, love all men, they are thinking of the culture's definition of love, and in doing so, they're completely distorting its idea. Biblical love is very different from the culture's definition. We spoke already of Jesus' teachings concerning the greatest of love in John fifteen thirteen that uh, a man would lay down his life for his friend. And this concept of love is extended in its teaching as we get to what we might call the treatise on love in 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, we see Paul's description as inspired by the Holy Spirit of love. You all are familiar with it. Let's read it again together. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things. Believeth all things. Hopeth all things. Endureth all things. We walked through this passage many months ago when we were in 1 Corinthians as we hit 1 Corinthians 13. And as we did so, we came to a nearly inescapable conclusion that the character of love is defined by selflessness. Do you remember that? The character of love is defined by selflessness. If you were to go up to someone on the street today and say, what is love? How many of you think selflessness would come up in the conversation? It wouldn't, would it? Emotions would come up. Dedication might come up. But see, the world defines love today as a kind of a, 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 a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, a 50-50 proposition, uh, something that's driven by emotion, something that is inexplicable uh, and, and that is um, not definable. But the Scriptures define love, and as the Scriptures define love, it is defined by selflessness. Jesus Christ said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. How much more selfless can one be? than that he would lay down his life for his friend. Paul, as he describes selflessness in a, uh, selflessness in a less uh, um, damaging way, we might say, if you're not going to lay down your life for your friend, if you're going to live in love, not die in love, well, here it is. That you're patient, that you're kind, that you're, you're humble, that you rejoice in, in righteousness, not in sin. This is love because this is all that is selfless. To allow our own best interests to override the interests of others is to exalt self-love over 
true love. Why do so many marriages have problems? Well, because husbands and wives don't understand what it is to love. Don't understand that love is not me doing you a favor because you did me a favor. It's not you hold up your end and I'll hold up my end. Love is selfless. That means love has no consideration as to my well-being and my best interest. Love is focused exclusively on the object's self-interest, the object's well-being. To watch silently, to rejoice as another person lives a life of sin and disobedience to God is to rejoice in their own destruction. That's not love. That's not love. And so at Legacy Baptist Church, we regularly define love, biblical love, this way. Doing what is best for the object of your love, regardless of self-interests and regardless of circumstances. The world tells us that loving people means letting them do their own thing. That we express love toward our children when we let them make their own decisions and mistakes. Allow them to go their own way. Don't discipline them and let them forge their own path. The world would tell us that is love. That we express love toward our fellow men by tolerating them, right? Tolerance is love in modern society. Tolerate their morals even if you don't agree with them. Tolerate their religious beliefs even if you don't agree with them rather than challenging them. And the world says if you want to express love, express love through toleration. But what does the Bible say? When we think of our children, the Bible says this in Proverbs 13.24, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him Betimes. That means many times, regularly. Chastens him necessarily. The parent who refuses to discipline the wrong actions of his child is doing the very opposite of love. Is doing what is least best for that child, the Bible says. We do our children no favors by making them think that their actions have no consequences. We do our children no favors by teaching them that they don't need to submit to authority. We do our children no favors by giving them an entitlement mentality. We do our children no favors when we allow them to perpetuate their own sinful choices rather than teach them how to make right choices. We do our children no favors by teaching them the consequences of lying and stealing when the consequences are very minimal. Instead of as they get older and now they have to learn that lying or stealing is a problem when they lose their job or when they end up in jail. When if we'd have taught him at age six, when all, it, all that, that stealing that cookie meant was a spanking and some time in your room on your bed for a while while your friends played, now they have to suffer the consequences when the stakes are so much higher. There's no love in that. We do our children no favors when we abdicate the role of showing them that God has expectations upon them and that God chastens his children for their rebellion. How about our second scenario? Scenario of tolerance. Well, Proverbs 27.6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. 
This verse reminds us that we do those in society no favors when we pretend that their actions aren't sin. We express the very opposite of love when we refuse to tell somebody that their religious beliefs are wrong and that it's going to place them on the path to hell. We express the very opposite of love when we ignore error in the name of tolerance or, quote, mutual respect, unquote. To tolerate other people's false beliefs, false sinful lifestyle choices when their beliefs or lifestyle choices are indeed directly opposed to God is akin to watching a blind man walk toward the edge of a cliff without warning him that he's about to fall over the edge. A person hurtling toward destruction and because of some false definition of love, we tolerate that. We overlook that. But see, there's no love there, is it? There's no love in watching a blind man walk toward a cliff edge. There's no love in watching a man who claims Allah or Buddha or ancestor worship or even some much closer form of false Christianity. There's no love in just smiling and nodding as they walk toward hell without trying to divert their path. So we must first reorient our minds on what it means to love. That love is expressed in circumstances where our actions and our reactions are driven by the best interests of others above those of ourselves, even at the expense of ourselves. And this is biblical love that Paul desires would abound in the life of these Thessalonian believers. And Paul, as he says this in verse 12, uses two very, um, ca- or, uh, very similar words as he seeks to convey the abundance of the love that he would desire of them. It's a very emphatic way of saying it. The first word, to increase, literally means increase or abound. The second word, which is abound in the King James, uh, has the idea of superabounding, overflowing, Uh, the idea would be that as I'm pouring water into this cup, the first increase would be as the cup hits about here, the second increase is as there's water all over the table around it. To abound and to overflow in your love one toward another. To fill up the cup and to just keep pouring as the cup is overflowing. That's the kind of love that Paul has called the Thessalonian believers unto. He wants them to excel in love. He desires love to be the very capstone of their testimony, the essence of their operation, their deepest motivation, their greatest compulsion. And notice, as we continue, the intended objects of this love. We said that love is doing what is best for the object of your love. Well, what, what, what is the object of love that Paul is speaking of here? Notice there are two intended objects, in fact. The first being one toward another. The brethren, believers. And then he expands on that and says, and toward all men. Unbelievers as well. Loving one another. Expressing biblical love toward those who are followers of Christ. 
This is the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It is the essence of obedience and testimony as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 13.34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And He would go on to say in verse 35, By this shall all men know that ye are My disciples, when ye have love, one toward another. Jesus says, you want to show people that you're a disciple of Christ? I can tell you how. Love one another. If you love one another, you will show people that you are a disciple of Christ. That we are to express the same love one toward another that Jesus expressed to His disciples while upon this earth. John 15 Verse 10 to 14, Jesus said this, If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. And then here we find verse 13 that we've mentioned already. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. To abide in the love of Christ is to keep God's commandments. And to keep Christ's commandments is to love one another. Paul taught in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, as Paul was teaching the Romans about this concept, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Literally, Paul is saying here that God's will for you in your relationships with others would be that you are not compelled in your relationship with them by any debt but the debt of love that you feel toward them that you don't have hanging over your head some sort of monetary debt that makes you want to treat them nice, right? You owe somebody some money and better not get on his bad side. He might call in your debt. Paul said, don't owe anybody anything but one thing, which is that when you get in their presence, you feel an overriding obligation that is compelled by your love for Christ and your obedience to His Word to love them as well. You feel obliged to love them. The Apostle Peter in his first epistle considered unfeigned love, in other words, unhypocritical love of the brethren, motivated by a pure and a fervent heart to be the deepest realization of our Christian transformation. He writes this in 1 Peter 1.22, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, See that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently. That is an emphatic verse. Love one another with a pure heart, fervently. I want to stop here for just a moment and consider. Let's consider the church today. As a matter of fact, let's not even go there. Let's consider our church today. When a guest walks in, if they were to stay for a few weeks, 
if they were to see how we operate one with another, would we obviously be disciples of Christ by virtue of the love that we show one toward another? Have you put any effort into love, selfless love for the brothers and sisters of this church? If there were to arise conflict or controversy, would selflessness prevail? Or are our hearts and our attitudes in such a place where conflict or controversy would do nothing but solidify us in our pride and bring about tremendous conflict? This is what Jesus Christ taught. This is what Paul is praying for this church. Is that love for the brethren would increase and abound. That our thoughts and actions and intentions would be so selfless that as we interact one with another as believers, there would be a complete submission one to another and utter selflessness and deference one to another, a bending over backwards one for another uh, without thought of self, without thought of personal gain or personal advantage, pouring ourselves out one into another until that cup of our love is overflowing toward one another. And you know, if, if God's church were there, how different things would be. Wouldn't they? If we were there, how different things would be. Four times in 1 John, which is an explanation of God's plan for fullness of joy. We read in John just a few moments ago the promise of fullness of joy. Well, John wrote 1 John in order that we might have fullness of joy. And as John explains fullness of joy through personal fellowship, we see the expectation that we would love the brethren. He says in 1 John 3.11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. You want fullness of joy? You want to walk in fellowship with God? Love one another. 1 John 3.23 And this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave His commandment. When we accept the love of Jesus Christ, it is our duty then to take that love and to reflect it one toward another. What did Jesus Christ withhold from you? Jesus veiled His deity. He set aside all deference. He set aside His privilege as God. He came to this earth. He lived under the law of Moses. He submitted Himself to men to the place of death for your sins. He withheld nothing from you. And the example is that we would go and do likewise. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. 
Are you walking in fellowship with God? Do you truly know God? Not in the salvific sense, in the fellowship sense. If you love one another, you know God. If you're not loving, the Bible says, you don't truly know God. 1 John 4, 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and His love is perfected in us. As we love one another, God's love is perfected in us. There is no controversy that the believer who is abounding in Christ is also abounding in love toward the brethren. What a tremendous concept. But while God's love was perfected in those who accepted His love, it is expressed toward all men, isn't it? All men have, re- have recognized or have, have um, had some measure of um, effect by Christ's love. In other words, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He died for all men. His blood was sufficient to cover the sins of all men so that the thing that separates Those who will be in heaven from those who will be in hell is not their personal sin, but their unbelief or belief. And in like manner, while our love is intended to be perfected one toward another, that one toward another, we are to uh, abound in love in such a way that others would see our love one toward another and would recognize the godliness of it. We are yet commanded to love all men. And this is what Paul says in the church of Thessalonica. He says, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Paul tells us this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Paul again puts emphasis upon loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, but he says, as we have opportunity, do good unto all men. Now, that word opportunity there, that word does not mean as the opportunity arises or when it is convenient. This isn't telling you, hey, when it's convenient, do good things for people. The word there literally means as you still have time while there is still an opportunity. See, we only have so much time on this earth before God takes us home. And Paul is saying, while you still have time, while God has still given you breath, while He has not yet returned, do good to all men. The central tenets of God's teachings concerning loving all men, however, came by way of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said this, Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27, I'll read through verse 36. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. And pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And to him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, 
And of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. As ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. Isn't that true? The world operates by a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours policy. There's nothing special about loving people that love you back. That's natural. Even the sinful flesh does that. And if you do good, Jesus says, to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But, Jesus says, love ye your enemies and do good and lend hoping for nothing again and your reward shall be great and ye shall be the children of the highest for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful as your father also is merciful. And ye shall be children of the highest, Jesus said. When you truly love them that do not love you, when you truly pour yourselves out in selflessness to those who would love nothing more than to see you miserable, then you have become like your Heavenly Father. Then the love of Christ is truly being shown through you. Do you want this kind of love as much as I do? Wouldn't that be wonderful to love like that? To one day see yourself act in the same way that the God of the universe did when He was in your shoes? It's our privilege. It's God's intention for our lives. It's what God wants from you. This is how God wants you to live. And He's enabled you to do it through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through His indwelling Holy Spirit. You can, through Christ, do this. Now imagine the situation in Thessalonica. Paul is writing this to a church that is being persecuted for their faith. We're not talking about a church a mega church in Thessalonica that gets its name in the newspaper for all of the good deeds it does and uh, gets little plaques from the city and has a key to the city in their, in their pastor's desk. We're not talking about a city that, that loves the, the church. We are talking about believers that are being beaten, being imprisoned, being killed for no reason other than their religious conviction. And Paul says, the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men. Paul has told them to love those who are beating them, killing them. Such is the legacy of the followers of Christ. Such must be your legacy. 
as a follower of Christ. And Christ-likeness is indeed the end that this is all working toward. This is the end that Paul's exhortation is pointing toward. In Psalm 17.15, David wrote, But as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. David says that one day we will awake to be like our God. But until that day, we have the privilege today of becoming more like Christ with every passing day on this earth. This is the end game of biblical love. This is what biblical love does. It conforms us to the image of Christ. Look at verse 13. Paul says this about this love. To the end that He, that's God, may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. Even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. The end result of purposed biblical love is that your heart will be established in holiness. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Paul is presenting God's end game here. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, just as we talked a few uh, minutes ago about being predestinated under the image of His Son, in this passage we see that we have been chosen, that believers, that those who will accept Christ as their Savior, who will follow Christ, have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be constantly sanctified until one day they are standing before God, holy and without blame. And in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, we see a confirmation of what Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 implies that the fullest realization of our sanctification will not be manifest until the day that we stand before God in our resurrected bodies. We'll be free from all the influence of sin. We'll be prepared for an eternal life of glory. One day, according to Ephesians, Christ will present us to the Father not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blemish. But until that day, believer, until the day that you stand before God holy and unblameable, and it's coming, and you will, you have a clear and definitive responsibility. And as we consider this responsibility, I point you again to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Ephesians 4 tells us, until the day when the church is perfected, we as a church are to be working toward that perfection through the Spirit's power upon this earth. Until the day that you stand before God, holy and unblameable in His sight, be working toward holiness and unblameable. Ability, I guess we could say, in his eyes. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, Paul says this, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth should be, uh, be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but rather speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Do you know what Paul just said there? Do you see the expressions of love there? How many times love was mentioned there? Fellowship and teaching in the local body under the authority of the pastor-teacher for the purpose of growth in godliness and protection from error. This is love. Mutual edification of one to another. This is love. Until you go home to be with the Lord and until you stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, God wants you here. He wants you surrounded by other believers. He wants you growing in godliness. He wants you bound by love one to another, reflecting that love to the world around you. God wants you here. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us. The question we ask as we close is this. How are you doing at your purpose? Do we love one another? Are we exhibiting true, unfeigned love for the brethren? Can we say this? about this church that we truly love one another? Would this church make it through hard times? Through selfless love? Do we have a love that would compel us to help others, other believers at our own expense? Do we have a love that would make us willing to bring up sin for the purpose of correction? Do we have a love that will encourage one another and hold each other accountable and build one another up in love unto the edifying of ourselves? Is that the kind of a church we have? Do we love everyone else? Do we have a love that compels us to talk to others about their need for the Savior? Do we have a love that would turn the other cheek, as it were, when our enemies confront us, hate us? Do we have a love that would reflect the love of Christ as He showed to the world when He died on the cross? that Luke chapter 6 kind of a love? Or are we just doing the same thing that sinners do? We'll love our own. We'll take care of our own. We'll forgive our own. 
And where do we grow in this love? Where is it that this love is grown in us? Where is it that we learn how to do this? What is the nucleus of that love? It's the local church. God gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. This is the context that God has designed to grow us in that love and to be the expression of that love. This is the training ground for you to go out and to bear the mockery and to bear the burdens and to bear the shame of Christ in the world. And then you come back here and you take a deep breath and you learn the Word of God and you're around men and women that love you. And it allows you to get out there again on Monday morning and go into a world that hates you and love them too. This is God's plan. This is God's design. This is why this body is so important. This is where the love for the brethren finds its deepest expression. This is where we learn what it is to be like Christ. This is where we strengthen ourselves to reflect Christ to the world. I'm thankful for we, for those of you who are willing to come and to be a part of this assembly, not just Sunday mornings, but Sunday morning and Sunday night or Tuesday evening. I'm thankful for God's people that are willing to do that. But for every ounce of sacrifice that it might be to come again on a Sunday evening or on a Tuesday evening, what we see in the Word of God is that it's God's plan. And it's as much a benefit as any sort of a sacrifice. As we rally around one another, expressing love one toward another for the purpose of edifying one another in love. How are you doing tonight? Loving one another, loving the brethren, to the end that our hearts may be established before God. Let's close in prayer.